When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is strange because it's, I feel like it's a very un-Bruce fan-like thing to say, but I think I became aware of him because of Born in the USA. I would have been 13 when that came out, and I think it was a case, it was just everywhere. It was everywhere. And especially the, with, the, with MTV at the time, you saw the I'm on Fire video, you saw Dancing in the Dark, you saw Born in the USA. Um, and so I think that's what sort of cemented him. Now, later, I'll get to it, get to a story later, but later I realized that there, was, there were songs of his I had heard before in my life that I loved, but I just didn't know it was him. Because again, th- this is a different era where you heard something on the radio and maybe you never heard it again. And unless you happen to catch the DJ at the right moment, maybe you heard, and that was Bruce Springsteen singing Born to Run, or maybe you didn't hear that. And so you had no idea. You just knew it was a song about somebody running and you didn't know who did it or anything like that. Especially if you were a kid and you couldn't say, no, leave it on that station, leave it on that station. And where I grew up after my parents got divorced, I, my mom moved to a very rural part of Maryland and rural in 1980 was very different from rural now because there was no internet. We didn't even have cable TV until I was in high school. And so it was very isolating and it wasn't, there wasn't a record store nearby where I could go pick out whatever record I wanted. That was a trek to do something like that. So I think it was born in the USA that really got me, that made me realize, oh, there is a person called Bruce Springsteen and this is the music that he does. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. I have a guest from my past. We were in what was called a fanzine years ago, and it is hilarious because Charles, who I do my Doctor Who podcast was like, you're talking to Barry? Talk about a voice in the past. Barry, welcome to Set Lusting Bruce. Thank you so much. And it's so great and also so strange to connect after all these years. It is very crazy to pull the curtain back. There are services, connections that will throw your name out there and say, hey, if you're looking for guests, we'll do. And so about every six months, they'll throw, I'll throw out like, yes, I need Springsteen guests. And Barry signed up. And then it was only after the fact we connected, wait a minute, we might know each other. So anyway, welcome to the show. For my guest, tell us a little about yourself. What's your elevator pitch? My elevator pitch. I am what you get when you take a comic book geek and give him a classical Ivy League education. 
I'm, I love comics and I love Paradise Lost. I love comics and I love Beowulf. I love comics and I love Ralph Waldo Emerson. And that is what you get. And what you get is a guy who in the past 15, 16 years has published 27 books on a variety of topics, mostly young adult, a lot of some literary coming of age, some thrillers, and some superhero stuff. Because again, this is who I am. This is what I do. I write everything imaginable. And so it, it's been all over the place. And Bruce Springsteen has been an enormous influence on all of it, much to his chagrin, I'm sure, if he would ever read any of my stuff. But, but yeah, big influence. I remember I was at a book signing for Brad Meltzer. And oh, Brad, was, I love yeah, Brad. I know. And he was telling the story that when he does his novels, he does tons of research. Like, he has to do so much research when he has to do a comic all the research is in his head and yeah. it's just working on the story he said yeah, sad yeah. to say no absolutely brad and i are roughly the same age we grew up reading the same comics we have a lot of the same pleasure points when it comes to yeah. comics and yeah i did I, I wrote six books based on the flash six novels that ended up being one big long story and yeah, I didn't have to look up anything. I just <laughs> I just knew all of it. It was when I wrote the serial killer books, I spent four months researching serial killer history and pathology and forensics and police procedures and law enforcement procedures and all of that stuff, all that time. And then I sat down to write six flash books and it was just like, nah, I got this. I got yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. I really do. All right. So I always like to start at the beginning. So talk about where did you grow up? And what kind of music did your family listen to when you were younger? Sure. I grew up just outside Baltimore, Maryland. And my father was a classically trained pianist, not by profession, but when he was younger, he'd played quite a bit. But he also grew up loving rock and roll. So I heard a lot of Beethoven in my house, but I also heard the Beatles, a lot of classic 60s rock. I, the big thing I remember my dad playing a lot was Del Shan and Runaway. He played that song a lot. He really loved that song. And a lot of Boston, more than a feeling, that sort of thing. But also huge Beatles fan, huge Rolling Stones fan. But the really cool thing about my dad was since he was a trained musician, he didn't, a lot of people, especially boomers like my dad, fell into this trap of music died when the Beatles broke up. And my dad never fell into that trap. As I was growing up, I remember in the 80s, I remember him saying once at a party with a bunch of his friends, any song by Madonna is better than just about any Beatles song. And they were all horrified because they were all boomers. And they were like, oh my, the Beatles are sacred. Nobody will ever be better than the Beatles. And here's my dad saying, this upstart, this upstart woman is just as good, if not better than the Beatles. So I always appreciated that he was able to, for a while there, he was able to keep up with what was new and still enjoy it. And, and that, that was always good. I liked that. How about you, Barry? Did you rebel against his musical taste? Did you embrace it? Talk to me as a teenager, I, Barry. No, I really embrace it. I enjoyed that music. Let's face it, that's great music. Yeah. By any standard, that is really great music. And again, I think that his his willingness to look at new music, I think a lot of times when you rebel against that sort of thing, it's because your parents are stuck in their childhood. And so you rebel against that. But my dad was just as happy listening to to, to Madonna as the Beatles. So it, I never felt stuck in that time period. Before I discovered Bruce, it was a lot of classic rock. And then when my parents got divorced and my mom remarried, my stepfather was really into heavy metal, which at the time was ACDC, that sort of thing. 
And, uh, and so I started listening to some of that, but I, I was never really, I could listen to it and enjoy it, but I never really felt it. And then it was, it was I really got into Dire Straits. I loved Heart. Just a lot of the, a lot of those sort of bands that took the sounds of the late 60s and the 70s and put a new twist on them. I really liked that sort of stuff. So I'm going to twist it just for a moment. Sure. And were you raised in a house full of readers? Were you, was reading always a thing there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both my parents were readers, but I will say my father was such a voracious reader that when I, when people ask me that question, I never think of my mother and she read. And to this day she reads, but like in my father's shadow, it was like, she didn't read at all because my dad read voraciously. It was a joke in the house that if there was a book with a swastika or a hammer and sickle on it, he would read it. He read all those classic Cold War spy thrillers and they they all had the Nazis or the commies or both. Sometimes they teamed up. It was a supervillain team up, the Nazis and the commies teaming up and only an intrepid retired CIA agent could save the world. My dad read a lot of that stuff. And then when my folks got divorced my and my dad got remarried, my stepmother was also a very big reader and read a lot of different things, everything from romance and what we came to call chiclet at some point through Peter Straub and Stephen King. And I ended up discovering my love of Stephen King from the books that she left lying around the house. So yeah, definitely in a house full of readers, two houses full of readers, really. So when did comics become part of the equation? Oh God, comics. I remember being five years old and reading Legion of Superheroes and some Justice League comics. And my dad used to read the the Spider-Man newspaper strip to me, which was always fun. And so, yeah, comics were really, comics were always there. Comics were always a part of my life. I cannot remember a time in my life when comics weren't there. And The Flash was probably my favorite as a kid because his name was Barry too. And when you're a little, when you're a little boy in the 1970s, your name is Barry. You don't have many people to look up to Barry Manilow but that's not cool and there's Barry White but even when I was a kid I knew I could never be as cool as Barry White so it really was one of the things was like oh wow this guy's name is Barry and he's really fast I'd like to be really fast that sounds cool and and then cut to 35 years later I'm writing The Flash and going oh my god I can't believe this is my life Mm -hmm. so yeah the the comics were always there from the very beginning Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So one of my earliest memories is my grandmother in worked at a post exchange in Fort Polk, Louisiana, and I would go to work with her and I must have been five or six and we would get up early in the morning. We drive to the store. She would be opening it and I would go to the spinner rack, pull every comic I wanted yep bring it to her she would rip the covers off all the comics so that she yep. could give it to her salesman to get credit to the distributor yep, yeah yeah and then yep. i so i never had comics with covers <laughs> and then i would then i would go and i would read the comics and then later in the day this was fort pokehead the buildings were on piers and so underneath the it was high enough that someone as small as i could go under the building and it was big enough. It wasn't like a scary, it was just almost like a outdoor basement and think doll H for heroes or legion yeah. of superheroes or, and I very quickly into this day, because I would get comics irregular. I didn't like Marvel comics because I never felt like I got the full story because they, stories. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And DC was one and done. And yeah. even to this day, when I have the chance, like I can follow along just Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Flash and all these Legion of Superheroes and Titans, Teen Titans, yep. just were, they were my friends. And, and to this day, they, they are. It's just something amazing. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a comic book reader when he was a kid in the, in the 50s and the early 60s. And he would tell me all the time, I had the first story with crypto and I had the first story with red kryptonite. And then he went to college and my grandmother, the classic story, my grandmother yes. threw away all the comics. Yeah. Um, and I never let her live that down as long as she lived. I gave her crap about that as long as I possibly could. And uh, yeah, I guess that's where the comics came from. I guess he passed that down to me. I remember we lived in Maryland. My grandparents lived in Connecticut and we would drive to see them a couple of times a year. And back then the, with the highways, the way they were and everything, it took, it was like a six hour drive. And I think just to keep my mouth shut in the car. So I would leave them alone. My parents would buy me a stack of comic books before we left. And I would just sit in the backseat of the car and read the comics over and over again until they became part of my DNA. Absolutely. Did you know you always wanted to tell stories? Yeah. Yeah. I have a pretty solid memory from being probably seven years old. And my grandmother saying to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I, I want to be a writer. And, uh, and she was this amazing old Jewish lady. I loved her. And I'll never forget. She looked at me and she said, oh, that's nice. You want to starve. And, <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, when you're, and you're a kid, so you don't have the sarcasm filters yet. You have, so I was like, I took, she was joking. I took it really seriously. And I spent a lot of my childhood trying to figure out how to be a writer, but also how to eat at the same time, because I like the idea of telling stories, but I also like the idea of eating. 
And I spent a lot of time figuring out, I'll be a writer, but also I'll be a teacher or a writer and a lawyer or writer and a physicist. And there was a scary week, like in eighth grade, it was going to be a writer and a priest. I don't even know if they let little Jewish kids be priests, but that was part of the plan. And, uh, and, and then eventually I was like, no, I, this is what I want to do. I just want to be a writer. I wish she had lived to see me succeed at it. She saw my first couple of short stories get published, but she unfortunately passed a few years before my first novel. And I wish she had seen that so that she would know that I'm, her grandson is not going to starve. I just today, I was listening to a podcast and it's Penn Gillette's Penn Sunday School. And the co-host is a guy named Matt Donnelly. And he said, he tells the story that his older son, it, his wife is like second or third generation show business. His wife yeah. was a dancer. His mother-in-law is a dancer. And so his son, they were doing some kind of performance and his son was really good. His older son and all the guests, all the people around were like, man, you've got someone maybe with a, a future in theater right. arts. Yeah. And without even thinking, Matt says, just what every father wants to hear. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, it was, I think that when you're a kid and you tell people you want to do something that, that nobody your family knows or has any experience with has ever done before, I think there's a very sort of natural contrary reaction of, you can't do that. Nobody does that. And, right. and we didn't know writers. We didn't, I never met a writer until I was a writer. And as a result, I think a lot of people in my orbit until, until I was out of college were just like, that's great, but what are you really going to do? Because they couldn't, it's not that, that was usually couched with, you're very talented, but what are you really going to do? Because they couldn't understand how it could happen because they had no experience with it. I don't know how often you do conventions or things, but one of my best friends is Tom Zoller, who does a book, Love and Capes. He's, he's worked for IDW, written My Little Ponies. And yep. I talk about this story when I have musicians on the podcast and I ask him, did you always know you wanted to make music? And often the answer is yes. I always knew. And then other times it's not, it's no, I yeah. didn't even think about it all till I, but Tom tells the story the moment he picked up a crayon he knew he wanted to draw for a living. That was all yeah. he ever wanted. And I think that's interesting. I'm 63 and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So I yeah. admire you guys for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm just, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, people have asked me what made you want to be a writer? What put that idea in your head? And I got to tell you, I have no idea. It's the great mystery of my life. If I had a time machine, I would go back to when I was like five or six years old and follow me around and try to figure out what it was. Because again, it's not like I knew a writer. There was nobody in my family who was a writer, no no friend, no, no next door neighbor who published a book, nothing like that. I don't even know what made me think at the age of six or seven, that was a job you could even have. If you think about it, when you're that age, do you really think about that sort of thing? I mean, my kids do, but that's because that's what daddy does for a living. Sure. So they're, they're aware of it. But I don't know what even made me think, oh, yeah, this is something you can do. And it's very, but somehow I stuck with it for a very long time. I don't remember the name of the short story, but there's an Isaac Asimov short story where this news reporter is shadowing some 
network executive, but it's not called a network executive because it's in the future. And there's three different meetings. And one of them, this guy who's the writer for these holograms comes in and says, I've got to quit. I've got to quit. And the executive tears up the contract and sends him on his way. And the reporters, what do you go? And he talks about all the different meetings. And he said, the last one is the one I feel best about. But you tore up the contract. He said, first off, my assistant's smart enough to know when I ask for a contract, I don't really mean the real contract. He said, but he's a writer and he can't stop writing. He might think he wants to stop. And I remember that I just had a guy on the podcast that is, has a book come out the 1st of June, which is all the Lisa Brown, the making and unmaking of the mamas and the papas. And in the book, he talks about John Phillips was wanted success. He really was moving his music around to be commercially successful. And as I read Bruce's biography and I read other people's biography, musicians, I think Brian Wilson and John Hyatt and Madonna, I'm sure people want that success, but they also have a musical muse that they need to explore. Yeah, they would do it regardless. The success is nice. It's a good added benefit, but yeah, they would do it regardless. Yeah. If you can remember, when did you first discover Bruce and what about his music spoke to you? This is strange because it's, I feel like it's a very un-Bruce fan-like thing to say, but I think I became aware of him because of Born in the USA. I would have been 13 when that came out. And I think it was a case, it was just everywhere. It was everywhere. And especially the, with the, with MTV at the time, you saw the I'm on fire video, you saw dancing in the dark, you saw porn in the USA. Um, and so I think that's what sort of cemented him. Now later I'll get to it, get to a story later, but later I realized that there was, there were songs of his, I had heard before in my life that I loved, but I just didn't know it was him because again, this is a different era where you heard something on the radio and maybe you never heard it again. And unless you happen to catch the DJ at the right moment, maybe you heard, and that was Bruce Springsteen singing Born to Run, or maybe you didn't hear that. And so you had no idea. You just knew it was a song about somebody running and you didn't know who did it or anything like that. Especially if you were a kid and you couldn't say, no, leave it on that station, leave it on that station. And where I grew up, after my parents got divorced, I my mom moved to a very rural part of Maryland and rural in 1980 was very different from rural now because there was no internet. We didn't even have cable TV until I was in high school. And so it was very isolating and it wasn't, there wasn't a record store nearby where I could go pick out whatever record I wanted. That was a trek to do something like that. So I think it was born in the USA that really got me, that made me realize, oh, there is a person called Bruce Springsteen and this is the music that he does. As far as what his, about his music spoke to me, This wasn't the case with Born in the USA, but overall for him, and this will not be a surprise, it's the storytelling. It, the songs are stories. And I think especially at the time, it's a vast and gross oversimplification, but still so much of music was about a amorphous, unidentified I 
I loved a girl and then she left me. Oh, girl, I loved you and then you left me. What? And there wasn't a story about it. They were just stream of consciousness complaints a lot of times. And or stream of consciousness revelations. Oh, I met the most amazing person. And this is a song about it. Whereas his songs, they had subplots, like they had multiple characters and they weren't about this undefined I. They weren't about this undefined first person narrator. They were about, they were sometimes third person. They were omniscient. They were third person limited. He was employing all the tools of storytelling in music. And at the same time, he was doing things that, that I wish I could figure out how to replicate on a page. There, there's no way to replicate on the page the perfect melding of a lyric and the music at the same time. You just can't do it. I've always said that if I could write a, if, if you could build a machine that turned prose into music, I would consider it my life's work over if you put one of my stories into it and it played Springsteen, any Springsteen, even one of the so-so songs. That's great. I did it. I managed to create that effect with prose because I have zero musical skill. But that was definitely was the storytelling that, that got to me. Once I realized who he was, and once I fell down the Bruce rabbit hole, which was probably about a year or so after Born in the USA came out, it was when the 75 to 85 uh, box set came out. That's when I went down the rabbit hole and realized, oh, this guy isn't just making songs, he's telling stories. I always like to preface this, the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are but right <laughs> for the record have you been able to see him live and if so do you count yeah i was actually trying to find there's still we moved into this house about seven years ago but there's still three boxes that have not been unpacked that are out in the garage and so i was trying to find all my ticket stubs so i could count up the actual number of times i've seen him and i could not get my hands on them in time for recording but it's been about a dozen times over the years first time was in the summer of 1992, which was interesting because that was the Lucky Town Roll of the Dice Tour. Yeah, the yeah, other the band. The other band, yeah. Uh, which actually, it was a magnificent show. It was great. It was a I, terrific show. I can't uh, But it was tell, weird. Yeah, was I can't weird tell that you. the first time I saw it wasn't with the E Street Band. So that is a story I've heard often, and they yeah. will say, and it's weird, that was the first time, and yeah. that band doesn't get as much love as it deserves. It yeah, was actually I, a pretty I thought good band. It, I, I thought it was a great band. Look, they're playing great songs with a guy who knows what he's doing. Like, it, you'd have to be a pretty incompetent musician to do a piss-poor job under those circumstances. I thought it was great. I had tried to see the Tunnel of Love tour. That was the first time. By the time I was really into him, Born in the USA was done and gone. But Tunnel of Love, I stayed up all night, stayed in line all night to get tickets. And I remember I was the next guy to go in to buy my tickets when the woman came out and said, we're sold out. And I killed her and left her in a shallow grave and they still have not found her. I was, I was angry only the way a 16 year old can be angry. A 16 year old who's sleep deprived because it was just awful. And I couldn't believe it. I, I just could not believe that I wasn't going to get to see him. But a few years later, yeah, I, I got to see the, as you say, the other band with my brother and my girlfriend at the time. And it was wonderful. It was an incredible experience. I, th I think my voice still hurts. I think my throat still hurts from all the screaming I did. So there is a wonderful website called My Boss Time that a guy from Denmark has actually built. You create a free account, and then he has every show from every tour. And if you mm -hmm. go and go, yep, I went to that one. Yep, I went yep. to that one. And then he, behind the scenes, will tell you 
how many shows you've gone to, what's your most heard song, what is your what are oh, your that's cool. show to play, what percentage of albums have you heard? It is a oh, I'm gonna do that. Oh yeah, my god, this is yeah. I yeah. have wasted my life that I haven't done this yet. Holy crap! <laughs> it is, it is a rabbit hole that you will enjoy. Yeah. It will, yeah. And you know what's cool? The wall is a song, and I can't remember it, but I saw it performed live, and I didn't think much about it. And it was like it's only been performed like twelve times, and oh, so wow. you know, so it was yeah, dead. Yeah. And yeah, I will, I'll send you the link. But it's yeah, it's my boss time. Uh, That's that, all, yeah, yeah, send me that. Yeah, my. My best friend, who is a huge Dylan fan, is I wish someone would do that for Dylan because yeah. he's seen Bob all these times. Yeah. Have you got to see the new tour? No, I have not. I spent a very fruitless couple of hours on Ticketmaster and I just, I got really fed up. I'll be honest with you. I got sure. really fed up. It, it is interesting because I saw back in 2012, I saw him at Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. And I got really lucky because a, a friend of mine I used to work with in another life, he got us tickets to that show and they were just general admission tickets. And so we had to go and stand in line and wait. And we were at the back of the line. And then they did this thing where suddenly they flipped the line around. So we were literally like in the first 10 people to walk in. So I was on top of the stage and I touched him and I touched his guitar. And if you watch bootleg videos of that show, you can see me screaming my head off and shaking my fists in the air. And I have to say, I've seen him three or four times since then, but I'm like, you know what? Like, I no longer feel the compulsion that I, like it used to be, I would have hacked, I would have hacked Ticketmaster to get the tickets. And now I'm like, I I don't know how it could get any better. Unless he wants to Courtney Cox me and pull me up on stage with him to dance. It just, it won't, it can't get any better than, than that night standing practically on top of him, pushing him and it. I want to see him as much as I can, but I'm not as driven as I once was. Sure. Yeah, I get that. Talk about, you mentioned, and in fact, I know like in one of your books, the preface is starting with the Springsteen quote, something about the Roxy, right? I was a regular guy. And then the next day I was a regular guy again. Uh, So talk about Bruce influencing in your writing. Yeah, that was my third novel it's called hero type and yeah it's about a kid who is in the right place at the right time and he does something and everybody goes my god he's a hero and they treat him like a hero and then he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and everybody turns on it and it was a meditation on that sort of thing and as i was writing it i kept thinking about that moment which is on the live 75 to 85 box set where he's at the roxy and he, and he says there i was one night just an ordinary guy and then there i was the next night and the crowd cheers and he goes god damn it i was still just an ordinary guy and i just i always thought that was so great uh and such a succinct description of our day-to-day life and yeah i used it as the epigraph to the book and my my editor was like what is this is this a line from a song i'm like no it's just him talking to the crowd that's all it is Uh, you know yeah so he was a huge influence in a number of ways i think the biggest thing I had wanted to be a writer since I was six or seven years old, and I discovered Bruce when I was in my young teens, so he didn't make me want to be a writer. But what definitely happened was his discovering him coincided with my understanding that people created art, and that some people were good at it, and some people were not so good at it. 
that was when I started really taking notice of the names in credit boxes and comic books, for example. For the first seven or eight years that I read comic books, it never even occurred to me to read those names in that box. Who cared? But I noticed some stories were good, some weren't, some art was good, some wasn't, but it never occurred to me, oh, it's because a different person's doing it. And I think with Bruce, what happened was I'd always wanted to be a writer, but he made me realize, oh, there are good writers and there are bad writers. And I want to be a good writer. I want to be a really good writer like this guy is. Because like I said before, I want to make people feel with my stories what he makes me feel with his music. And so that was a big influence. And you take that and you take the comic books and then you take an, an English degree and you combine all that together and you get some weird stuff <laughs> that comes out of it. And I think one of the things that, that he influenced me on is finding the poetry and the majesty and sometimes the horror and the sadness of just everyday life. A lot of people, especially when he was bigger, when, when he was dominating the scene, a lot of people made a lot of hay and got a lot of laughs out of joking about, oh, Bruce Springsteen songs. I woke up in the morning, I drank my orange juice. And it's fair enough, but it's no, like, what's he telling you with that? I think of from Tunnel of Love, I think of One Step Up. I woke up this morning, the house was cold, checked the furnace, she wasn't burning, went out, hopped in my old Ford, hit the engine, but she ain't turning. Right? Yeah, that's just a guy whose house is cold and his car won't start, if you look at it on a very basic level. But when you look at that and it's combined with the music and the sound of his voice, you're like, God, like you just told me this guy's whole life story in four lines. And that's, like any writer will tell you, that is incredible. That's the dream. <laughs> it takes me a hundred pages to do that. And he can do it in four lines and a guitar riff. So I, I think trying to take those elements of the, those elements of everyday life and spin them into something that is illuminating and entertaining and interesting is something that I definitely, I think I got from him. Yeah, there are lyrics that you... It just speaks, right? That yeah. a poor man living in his own skin who can't stand the company. That's, yeah. that says a lot. And it's also what he was going through at the time. It's filled with so much self-loathing. Right. And it's really brave to put that sort of self-loathing out there for people to critique. And yeah. I admire that. Yeah. Have you read his autobiography? Oh God. Yeah. I <laughs> The day it came out, I had a copy and I was... It's funny. My wife was like, you're carrying that book around the house. It was like my security blanket. Like every time I had a moment, I was opening it and reading it. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It pissed me off to a degree because I'm like, oh, he can write prose too. Great. Great. So that's just great. <laughs> we were talking, I think before I hit record about Ron Martz. And so he was on the podcast during the pandemic and they were locked down and I think it was right at the end, but I had asked him, had he heard the Springsteen from my home to yours, the Sirius XM mm -hmm. things? Yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I said, just, they're so good. And Ron said, we know he's a great storyteller. Why are we surprised that yeah. if he chooses to tell a story by being a DJ and picking songs that he right. won't be brilliant at that as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that was also like my wife's reaction when we saw the Broadway show, yeah. uh, which she was, she she's 
not a huge fan, but she's a fan, not anything like me, <laughs> but we went and we saw it and she walked out and she was just like, she's, I, that was stunning. She was like that. She's like, every major artist should have to do that. That was so like illuminating and just insightful and just amazing. And for her to feel that way as somebody who's not a super fan like like I am, I think spoke really well to his ability to do that. And again, he plays something like four songs, I think, over the course of the show, maybe five songs. I can't remember off the top of my head. But and the rest of it's just him talking. And yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a few more than that, but you're right. But my story, I love two stories from Broadway is I guess three. My I went to my wife and I said, I have a question for you. And I want to stress you don't have to say yes. And I preface this that there are in a marriage, there are questions you get asked and you have to say yes. Yeah. My sister's coming over to spend the night. Do you care? No, yeah. Yeah. And you, right. you can't say yeah. So I said, someone has reached out to me and I have a ticket. They can get me a ticket to go to Broadway yeah. and it's going to be blank. Yeah. And we really have better use for the money. I know that. Yeah. Are you going to be okay? And I said, and you can say no, and I will not be mad. And she, we got together and she figured out a way. She helped me coordinate so I could fly and keep it all under our budget. So I give her all credit. We're watching it on Netflix. Yeah. And, and I, (laughs) this is, it was almost like it's a movie. She says, stop this. I have never been more depressed in my life. I can't watch anything else. I said, okay, yeah, I'll stop. And like the next thing Bruce says is, okay, I'm going to get you off suicide watch now. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about my mom. So for Father's Day, a couple of years ago, they said, what do you want? And I said, I really would like you both to watch Spring Center and Broadway. Okay, we're going to do it. And I warned Linda this time. I said, if you had stuck with it. So my son at the time was probably 29, 30. And so we're watching this. And like growing up, my wife's, I don't understand what he's saying. And my son is going, oh my God, this is great. So he watches it and we're finished. And he goes, how can he do that every night? I watched it and I'm emotionally drained. How can you perform that every night? And then, oh, by the way, the next night, I'm going to throw it all out there again. And oh, yeah, the next night, I'm going to throw it out there again. And I agree with your lovely bride. It, it, you throw it, Western Stars, and the autobiography, it is a trilogy of telling his life, isn't it? Yeah, the film. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts about Letter to You? Oh my God. I I didn't quite know what to expect when I saw I mean, here's the thing. You gotta understand that if I was the priest is big for me. I was raised Catholic and Jewish, and I'm a huge John Milton freak. So you write a Western about what's wrong with Catholicism using the imagery from Paradise Lost and you got me like I'm there and I had a bootleg of it which of course was the only way to hear it but somehow I can't remember how somehow I had a bootleg of it in college 
on cassette, of course, and it was just terrible quality. And man, I listened to that thing over and over again. And then it was what? It was Before the Fame was the CD that the Michael Pell put out. Yeah, Bruce put a cease and desist on it, but I got in before the cease and desist and I got that thing and it had a nice pristine copy of, of If I Was the Priest. And so I listened to that and I wasn't sure what to expect. And at first I didn't like the version on Letter to You. It felt a little too peppy to me and I liked the original, but I have come to appreciate it quite a bit. I like those three songs that he redid from the past, especially because he is a guy who who for a long time seemed like he was not interested in his own past. He was not interested. And then he did tracks and he did some other stuff where it's, oh, okay, he's digging into the vault. That's cool. Um, And I think that comes with age. (laughs) Obviously, you become reflective and nostalgic. And so I thought that was great. And I was really happy to see those songs. And then just the new stuff is so good. And again, so sad. And it, it really is, it's him talking about his own life without metaphor, which... I know before I said that I didn't really, that that's what I liked about him when I was a kid was that he did talk about life through metaphor, but I think that he's earned it at this point. Like when when Johnny Cash did his cover of Hurt, man, he earned the pain in that song. And I think similarly, Springsteen has earned the right to take away the metaphor and just talk about his life in a way that a 25-year-old Springsteen, it would not have been nearly as interesting to hear him talk about his life without the metaphor. Yeah. During the river tour, the second one. Yeah. I really became independence day was an okay song till I saw it on that, the river tour. And I, the juxtaposition of here is someone singing a song that he wrote when he was younger. Now from the age that his father was, if not even older was amazing. Yeah, so I got lucky. I live here in Dallas, so we saw him on Dallas. Then we drove to Houston for the February 14th show, and then I went to Austin by myself the 16th. And so we're there on the 14th, and he says, I wrote this song 50 years ago, and the people I was with were all, my wife is like, why are y'all looking excited? And he did if I was the priest. And it just, it was just oh my goodness, talk about a gift. And yeah, uh, yeah. it just, I, and I'll see in my dreams as such a powerful statement about life and losing people and, but yet having hope for seeing them, if not in another life in your dreams where they're always with you. Yeah, just it, I don't think he's done recording. I think he will still do another original album. I don't think he'll just do some bunch of cover albums. I think he's having fun doing them. But if he had to stop, that is not a bad album to say. Oh, not at all. Not at all. That's a fine album to to stop on. But I agree with you. Unless something horrible and tragic happens, let's hope it doesn't. I can't imagine him saying, yeah, I'm going to end my career on a bunch of Motown covers. Yeah, no, I, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. just, that does not compute. At, it, it doesn't at, at all. all. Yeah. So yeah. I think we can look forward to another couple of albums, God and Clarence willing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. All right. I've kept you a while. So I'm just, I, I want to switch over just for a little bit. Talk about writing. And so sure. talk to me, go through, you went through 
I know some of your early books were a lot about fandom and such. And yeah. how, what, talk to me your career a little bit. What were you, what are you, what kind of led you and what were you trying to accomplish besides well, not starving to make your grandma yeah. happy? It's funny because I don't think about this a lot, but I've been thinking about this because I knew I was going to be on the show. My first novel is The Astonishing Adventures of Fanboy and Goth Girl. Uh, somebody once described it as both a love letter and a suicide note to the comic book world, which is probably the best description of it. And I really wish I'd come up with it, not somebody yeah. else. But it's funny because it's about a kid who loves comics and he wants to meet Brian Michael Bendis. He's obsessed with Brian Michael Bendis. And the reason I chose an actual comic book creator and didn't just invent somebody was because there was a book in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I'm going to say late 80s, called Dear Bruce Springsteen. And it was a novel about a kid who is going through a tough time in his life and he survives by writing letters to Bruce Springsteen talking about what's going on in his life. And I remembered that book. I don't remember anything about it, really, but I remember its existence. And I remember thinking, oh, that, that's a cool idea. Take a real person and, and, and ground your story in that. And that's why I did what I did with that first book. So the Springsteen stuff has been there from the very beginning. And in most of my early books, there's somewhere there's a line in there. There's a lyric in there somewhere, whether it's somebody just saying it out loud or me using it as the author somewhere in there. It, you got to look for it, but it's in there somewhere. So yeah, always with my writing, I, like I said, I always wanted people to feel after they read my stories, the way I felt after listening to, to, to a Bruce song, which was, I always feel like his songs are very specific and yet universal at the same time. And I think that one of the things his music does is it puts you in another person's shoes for the length of a song, which I think is a really good thing to do. I, I think the world would be a different place if we all practice that sort of empathy on a regular basis. And when I say empathy, it, it doesn't mean you have to like the person or even agree with the person. Charles Starkweather in Nebraska is not a hero of mine, but for the space of that song, I understood the guy. And I think that if we all practice that sort of empathy, like I said, the world would be a better place. And that's what I always wanted my stories to do. For the length of time it takes you to read one of my books, I want you to see the world through somebody else's eyes and take that with you when you're done. It's, so I know, it's a simple thing, but that, that, no, that's no, what I go for. It's a great thing. So here's a odd question, and I'm sure you get it all the time, but I... A couple of weeks ago, I had Terry Moore on the podcast. And, oh, Terry. Oh, oh, I love I, Terry. Yeah, I love Terry too. And he talked about, I get asked all the time, where do I start on your books? And he says, my Terry verse, and he mentioned, I started in Strangers of Paradise, and then yep. I wanted to do something different. So I did, I did Echo, and then I did Rachel Rising, and then I decided I'm going to make this. I didn't plan on doing a universe, but I did. And so... If someone wants to explore your work, what do you recommend? What's a what's your version of Born in the USA? The gateway drug. <laughs> the gateway drug. I right now we we're going through a very scary period of book banning in this yes. country. And I kind of want to recommend a book of mine that's being banned quite a bit called Boy Toy. It was my second book. And I think it's it but it's 15 years old at this point, but it still holds up. It's about a 12-year-old kid who is molested by his teacher. And he's now 17, and she just got out of jail. And it's 
what this does to him and what their relationship did to him. And I think it's a really good book. And it's, it's connected to some of my other books, but it basically stands alone. So I always feel like that's a good book for people to start with. But I'm also going to go ahead and say my, my I Hunt Killers book. That's a trilogy. But if you just want to read the first one and stop there, I won't yell at you. But I don't think you'll want to stop there. You could, but I don't think you'll want to. And that's just because that's a, that, that was, it's certainly the most commercial thing I've done. It's serial killers. Everybody loves the serial killer story. And so I think that people, it's a little more, you tell people what it's about. Oh, it's about serial killers. And they go, oh, okay. And they get it. I did a lot of different things with it. I wanted to do, I, I didn't want to just write a straight serial killer book. So it's very different, but people get it in a way they don't get, oh, this is a book about a kid who's molested by his teacher. And they go, wait, why do I want to read that? Sure. And I'm like, trust, trust me, you want to read it. But, but also my, my wife and I wrote a book together called The Hive, which is one of those things where we wrote it and as we were writing it, the real world was catching up to what we were doing. It's about a near future where everything you do online can be voted on, basically. And if you get enough downvotes, people can actually come after you in real life and do things to you and it's all perfectly legal. So maybe you get enough downvotes that people just throw eggs at your car, but maybe you get enough downvotes that they can drag you into an alley and beat the crap out of you. And while we were working on that, we had to keep making things crazier and crazier because the real world was catching up to us. And, and I think that book started out as a cautionary tale and God, I'm terrified it's going to become historical fiction at this point. So I, I think those are fun things for the comic book fans, the flash books. I wrote a Thanos book. Those are fun. Pick up any of them. They're fun books. My, the local sports station talked about the film. It, I'm drawing my idiocracy, right? And they oh, said yeah. the only thing that film got wrong was the timeline, right? Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah. it is happening yeah. faster than ever. Yeah. That's, that's good. What's next? What's next for Barry? What do you want to do next? What haven't well, you I mean, done that you want to do? Uh, honestly, I want to do a graphic novel or two. I did a graphic novel with Colleen Doran a few years back, God, 10 years ago now, 12 years ago. And we had a lot of fun with it. And I've sworn that I would do another one and I just never had the time. And now I'm sitting here with some ideas and I really, I would just love to do a cool graphic novel. So I'm hoping that I can do that. That would be terrific. What did you do with Colleen? It was called Manga Man. Okay. And the basic premise is that there's a rip in reality and a kid from a Japanese comic book falls through into the real world. And now he's living in the real world, but he's a Japanese comic book character. They send him to school because he's got to go to school. And he goes to school and he sees a cute girl and his eyes turn into hearts. And everybody's like, like in real life, think about it. That would be horrifying if that happened. And everybody's like, oh my God, that kid's eyes just turned into hearts. And they're terrified of him. And it was just a lot of fun to write. It's a Romeo and Juliet story. But it's instead of warring families, it's warring art styles. And Colleen was the only person who could do it justice. And it, whether you like the story or not, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I can imagine. By the way, I just looked on Amazon. Yeah. I Hunt Killers, if you do Kindle, it's only $1.99, the first one. Which Really? I, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. I oh, love it's on sale right now. Okay. I love when Amazon does that, right? It's, hey, yeah. here's the first book in a series. Go ahead. It's only two bucks. And then well, it's funny. I, I usually get a heads up from somebody when the book goes on sale because they always want me to say <clears> on social media, hey, everybody, the book's yeah. on sale. So I did not know that. I will have to look at that. That's very cool. 
And yeah. if it's on sale, if it's a buck ninety nine at Amazon, it's a buck ninety nine everywhere because they all scrape each other's sites. And whenever one of them drops a price, they all the right. other ones drop prices too. Yeah. So yeah, I'm hitting collect now. I'm buying that. So that's great. <laughs> what have you not besides if I was the priest, what songs yeah. have you not seen that the next time you get to see him live, you want to see? What are you still chasing? I have a deep abiding love for loose ends. Okay. Uh, that was also on that bootleg tape that I had from a million years ago. And I just, man, I love that song. I did, when I was in college, I wrote a whole short story based on that song that I never got to do anything with, but I was, it was so in my head that I had to do something with it. And so definitely that I have heard Lost in the Flood. I've heard live versions of it, but never when I was there, I would love to hear, God, do I love Lost in the Flood. Love to hear that live. And I think, I think also probably Iceman, which I've always liked. I would really like to hear that too. And hey, if he wants to blow my mind and pull out some steel mill, like a little going back to Georgia or Hell Resurrection, I, I'm not going to complain. He can take a couple of hours to play Hell Resurrection for me anytime. So I, that, that would be cool. That's awesome. Barry, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't think so. The only thing is I was going to talk about, we talked about when I discovered him, but we didn't talk about what sent me down the rabbit hole, Yeah, which, which was when he did his cover of War in the 80s. It was all over MTV and I really loved it. And then I discovered that, and I, I wanted to own it because I wanted to be able to hear it whenever I wanted. And I w- discovered that it was only on the live 75 to 85 box set. And I remember my mom said to me, what do you want for Christmas this year? And I, I said, I, I want the 75 to 85 box set and she was like i didn't know you were a bruce springsteen fan which i wasn't yet i i, I yeah. just knew who he was but i wanted that song and uh that was in the 80s that was like a 40 dollar box set which was big money back then and my mom we didn't my mom didn't have any money but i totally lied i'm like oh yeah big fan and she was like oh okay and she got it for me which was really nice and so i listened to war over and over again and then at some point, the Catholic Jewish guilt kicked in. I'm like, God, like I made my mom spend $40 on this thing. And all I do is listen to one song. That's terrible. I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to the whole thing start to finish, no matter how bad it is. And just so that I will assuage this guilt. And I remember Thunder Road is the first song. And I remember going, wait, I know this song. I like this song. I've heard this song before. I like this song. And that kept happening. As I was listening to it, I, every few songs, like, wait, I know this song. I like this song. And it kept happening. And then there's that moment, and I'll never forget this. I remember it was, had the tape in my boombox in my room at home, and I was sitting at my desk doing something at my Atari computer. And I remember he starts telling the story that precedes the river, where he's talking about his sister. And he's talking, oh, no, he's talking about his dad. And he's talking about getting drafted to go to Vietnam and his long hair and his fights with his dad. And he talks about coming home and his dad wanted him to go to war. And then he comes home. He says, they didn't take me. His dad says, that's good. And he says, that's good. And the crowd cheers. And then he plays that low, mournful harmonica note to lead into the river. And I remember he hits that note and I stopped whatever it was I was doing. And I just froze and I turned to look at the boom box. I don't know why. There was nothing there. But I just stared and I had never been, I had never felt something so deep in my life, in my young life. And I just thought, that's magic. That is pure magic. And that was it. That was it. I was hooked at that point. I'd been enjoying the music. 
It was fun, but it was the combination of telling that story, that perfect lead into the perfect song. I was just like, oh my God, I will follow this guy anywhere. <laughs> That's great. I love it. All right. I end every podcast with the the Mary questions. <laughs> yeah. So if you are a fan of Barry's writing and so you're checking out this podcast, thank you. He's made you all proud. Jay Armstrong is a retired honors English teacher that taught in the Philadelphia area. And when he was teaching, he would take the song Thunder Road and would print out the lyrics to all his high school seniors and that were in his honors English class. And they would break apart the poem as if it was like Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, and would talk about the imagery Bruce is using and the themes that the poem is exploring. And then at the end of the two days, he would ask his class, does Mary get in the car? So Barry, that is your question. And <laughs> as someone who loves classic literature and Bruce Springsteen and comics, what's your answer? Yeah, this one, th this is one of those cases where I think I said before that, that he does things with his stories that I can't do because he has the music to accompany it. And I think in this case, that bears out. When I was younger, I would have said, no, she doesn't get in the car. But that's because I liked really depressing endings. But I think she does. And the main thing that convinces me beyond the lyrics and beyond interpreting the story he's telling, the thing that convinces me is that amazing, triumphal Clarence solo that ends the song. Like, how can that be about anything but joy, that solo? And I just, I really do think that she does. Because otherwise, I don't think you end it with that amazing sax solo. And it's funny because this is the song that I sang to my kids to get them to go to sleep at night was Thunder Road. I don't know why. When the first night in the hospital with my daughter, I was holding her and, and I just started singing Thunder Road to her. And it was, it was always Thunder Road. So I'm really familiar with this song. I have sung this song a lot and I have hummed Clarence's solo a lot to get my kids to go to sleep. And yeah, I, I think she gets in the song, I, I, in the car rather. I think she gets in the car. So... I love that answer. And I will tell you, I had a guest probably about a year ago that said, it depends. Mm. He says, if it's the E Street band playing it, she absolutely gets in the car because <laughs> of the ending. But if it's Bruce Solo, uh, when yeah. he and that, da, na, 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 yeah. she doesn't get in the car. <laughs> because oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I, so I love that story that you just showed right because he was similar he says the music tells your way so that's awesome i love this barry what's the best way if someone wants to reach you oh boy the best way is through my website barryliga.com easy to remember there's a contact form there i am also on twitter for now we'll see what happens there as it continues to slowly burn to the ground and I'm on Mastodon. And I think I still have I still have a Tumblr too, which, hey, reach out to me there. I check it every now and then. And yeah, yeah, reach out. I'd love to hear from people. Thank you so much, Barry, for joining me. This was a blast. I just, it was just, I love hearing your story. I, I, I have read your comics. I have checked out some of the books. I have not checked all of them. And now after spending time with you, I'm going to go down that dark trilogy of things i always tell people about lawrence block's keller books and i'm like it's about a it's about a hired kit man but 
really, they're good. It's just, yeah. <laughs> so I am so happy that we got to spend time together. And I will tell Charles, you said hi. So listeners. It was great to catch up with you. Yes. Absolutely great. Yeah. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please remember to be safe, be kind. And if remember, if you open up your hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast, with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 